This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. What are you doing? So, we're in the lockup for budget 2022. Uh, I am looking for the budget papers, which have just dropped. On Tuesday, the federal government officially handed down their 2022 to 23 budget. Here is the budget speech. The Honourable Josh Frydenberg, MP Treasurer of the Commonwealth of Australia. What's he going to say? Mr Speaker, I move that this bill be now read a second time. Tonight, as we gather, war rages in Europe. The global pandemic is not over. Devastating floods have battered our communities. We live in uncertain times. The last two years have been tough for our country. But Australia remains resilient. Australia remains strong. We have overcome the biggest economic shock since the Great Depression. Our recovery leads the world. Faster and stronger. In his budget speech, Frydenberg portrays the Morrison government as the best option to lead Australia out of the pandemic and out of these uncertain times. This is not a time to change course. This is a time to stick to our plan. A plan for a stronger economy and a stronger future we will deliver. This is an election year budget, with billions of dollars of spending on the regions, defence, business, infrastructure, and a cost of living package to ease pressure on households, all forming a key part of the Morrison government's re-election pitch. But will this budget actually ease pressure on people's lives? And could it help deliver the coalition a victory in the upcoming election? Today, the cost of living budget. It's Wednesday, the 30th of March. Hi, Paul. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. Paul Karp is a political reporter for Guardian Australia. Do you want to start going through? (laughs) So, Paul, you have been tasked with explaining what the government is doing about cost of living in this budget. What have you found? So there are a few big measures, uh, a cash splash of $8.6 billion in things to improve the cost of living, but they're one-off or temporary. That includes a boost to the tax offset for low and middle income earners, a one-off payment of $250 to welfare recipients and seniors, and the fuel excise tax will be cut in half for six months. There is one permanent change to parental leave, uh, which will allow parents to access up to 20 weeks leave split between the parents however they like. So let's start with that low and middle income tax offset. This is often referred to as the Lamington. It was brought in a few years ago as a temporary measure because the government's tax plan had been critiqued as favouring the wealthy. What else do we need to know about the Lamington? Yeah, so a few years ago, they introduced what's called the lower middle income tax offset, which is basically uh, you get $1,000 back at the end of the of the tax year. Um, so it's a way of cutting people's income tax that gives it to them all in one hit at the end of the year. And that was very popular and hard to withdraw. Mm. Even when the income tax cuts that it it was designed to smooth the transition to had been introduced. So for a few years, people on middle incomes were getting a double tax cut. Mm. And that 
has been boosted by a further $420 this year to a maximum refund of $1,500 for individuals. And when you say low and middle income earners, who are we talking about here? So it's 10 million people earning up to $126,000 per year. The biggest benefit is to about half those people who are earning between $48,000 and $90,000 who get the maximum $1,500 deduction. Mm. Right. So what about this one-off $250 payment? Who is getting this, Paul? That's 6 million people who are receiving government payments or are concession card holders. So that's people like pensioners, disability support recipients, parenting payment recipients, carers, job seekers, veterans, some self-funded retirees and concession card holders. Mm. So the cost of living measure that's probably triggered the most conversation over the past few days is the fuel excise. We know that petrol prices have been incredibly high, driven by the war in Ukraine. What is the government doing for our petrol prices, Paul? So the petrol tax of 44 cents a litre is being halved for six months. And Josh Frydenberg says that'll save a family with two cars filling up once a week around $30 a week or $700 over that six-month period. Mm, I've been putting off filling up my car lately, so I'm sure that's going to be a relief for some people to hear. (laughs) My petrol light is flashing uh, (laughs) and it's... Frydenberg said it will flow through at the Bowser within the next two weeks. It had better be within the next two days or I'm going to break down on the way to Parliament. (laughs) Okay, so that's the kind of temporary things that have been announced. You said there was something more permanent happening to do with parental leave. What are they doing there? So instead of parental leave being 18 weeks for one parent and two weeks for the other. It's going to be 20 weeks all up, fully flexible, split between the parents however you like. Mm -hmm. And also for the first time, single parents will be able to get the full 20 weeks now. And that measure is going to cost $346 over five years. Thank you, Paul. No worries. Oh, uh, let me grab him. Um, Okay, Peter, so thanks for joining me in the pod room. This is your first budget for Guardian Australia as economics correspondent, and you've been looking at the broad picture of what this budget says about our economy. I want to start with what it says about the economy right now. So it states that Australia's economy is outperforming all major advanced economies. It even includes a graph showing the Australian flag above, you know, France and Canada and other countries. Is that true? Well, it does depend on what measure you're looking at. Peter Hannum is an economics correspondent for Guardian Australia. But it's fair to say that if you compare with, you know, how Australia's economy is compared to pre-COVID levels and look at rival rich nations, then Australia's doing probably better than most. Um, The US in particular, you know, under Trump, we know made a big stuff up in how it rolled out the pandemic, vaccines and, and the like. So it is a little bit of comparing, you know, countries like Uh, the US. But if you look generally at the position where we are with um, growth in 2022 and where that's going to come in, um, the budget is predicting a 4.75% growth rate for 2022. Mm. uh, And that's faster than pretty much uh, all the nations we trade with. Um, China, which is um, obviously not as developed, but um, growing fast is really the only um, major trading partner that's growing Um, faster than Australia. Right. So what does the budget have to say about our economy going forward? Look, probably the uh, biggest bragging point of the budget 
is the forecast that the jobless rate will fall to 3.75% by September. And if it does so, uh, that would be the lowest rate in about 50 years. Mm. Uh, that's quite impressive. But I should say 3.755% isn't so great. Mm. But nevertheless, because many more people are uh, likely to be uh, in work, and in fact, the jobless rate has been falling, the government can save on welfare receipts on the one hand, and they collect um, a lot more tax receipt uh, on income tax. So that's helped uh, turn around the budget fortunes in the order of about uh, 20-odd billion dollars in the fiscal year we're now in, and sort of similar numbers out for the forward estimates in, in about $100 billion uh, all up over those four years. What else does it say about what's going to happen going forward for the economy? Look, interestingly, um, it's predicting that uh, the economy switches from being public-funded led and the uh, Treasury has been issuing, the government's actually been issuing about a billion dollars in new debt every fortnight for the past two years, which has been stoking uh, growth in the economy. Anyway, what's expected to happen is that the public... Uh, purse, if you like, uh, is relied on less to stoke uh, economic growth, but more the private sector, particularly households. So, for example, you know, there's, we're relying on household spending to increase about, you know, more than 5% in this coming year. So, the expectation that the government is really relying on is that that $250 billion in extra savings that we've been parking away during the COVID times will actually start to be spent. So household consumption will be really, um, along with business investment, the two key drivers of um, the economy in the coming years, if the government's right. So Peter, something that could threaten this fairly confident outlook from the government is inflation. Right now we're seeing really high global inflation. The government is saying in the budget that they're going to be able to keep this in check and they'll do better than the other countries. Tell me more about that. By the end of this financial year, uh, inflation, the CPI, um, is expected to be at 4.25%, well ahead of the 2.75% they're expecting the wage price uh, index to rise by. Um, but in any case, if um, the government is right, they are forecasting, uh, this is Treasury, that uh, inflation somehow miraculously goes back to an only 3% uh, rate of increase in 22-23. Uh, this coming year, uh, and then further back with a two, like 2.75% for the next two fiscal years. And if you look at like the shortages that we're seeing, the higher uh, fuel prices and the likelihood some of those will stay high for some time, um, you have to wonder about the um, uh, confidence you put in such uh, a low uh, CPI. And of course, if it turns out to be much higher, then a lot of people are going to feel they're going backwards instead of this was the time they're meant to be making hay and uh, having, uh, you know, getting ahead of um, the price increases. Right. So as you mentioned, they're hoping that inflation will stay in check. But if it doesn't, we might see the Reserve Bank of Australia increase interest rates. Why would they increase interest rates and why is that bad for the everyday person? Well, look, until about a few months ago, the RBA was saying they could wait possibly until 2024 um, before they lifted rates. They were having record low cash rate at just 0.1%, really looking out over the horizon. Well, of course, world, world events 
have started to catch up. Um, and even before Russia invaded Ukraine and sent food and uh, also oil, other energy prices through the roof, um, inflation was already picking up in a lot of countries. COVID disruptions were one case, but also all that pent-up demand that um, if you throw so much money at consumers, as I mentioned, like a billion dollars uh, extra borrowing per fortnight by the Australian government for two years, some of that is going to trigger higher you know, inflation. And of course, we started to see that. And if um, the government's you know, wrong about this, the RBA you know, is independent and they will start lifting interest rates. Financial markets are betting the RBA will start lifting its cash rate from the record low as soon as June. Um, and in fact, keep rising pretty much um, for the next couple of years out to 3%. What would a 3% interest rate rise mean for the average person on the street? We see, of course, the cash rate is, you know, what all the banks sort of base as, you know, they add on their own costs, et cetera. So, uh, you know, for, for instance, one percentage point increase or just a little bit more than that um, will add a lot more to the average mortgage rate of people on, uh, you know, depending on how their loans are. Interestingly, for instance, in New South Wales, um, average new loans were about $800,000, right? And so if you were to increase interest rates by one percentage point, like by February, which is what the Commonwealth Bank is expecting, Rate City is telling us that you're looking at, you know, more than sort of $500 extra repayments. Mm. And of course, if it keeps rising, that's going to eat into consumer confidence, divert more money from spending, and make it probably harder to meet um, the kind of growth forecast that the budget is banking on. What's the worst case scenario in terms of the impact on mortgages? Okay, well, look, it's hard to say whether this is the worst case, but to give you an idea that it doesn't have to be much higher before you start like eating into um, the ability of households to repay debt. According to the Commonwealth Bank, um, if the uh, cash rate were to reach 2.5%, which is quite possible, then um, the share of household uh, disposable income paying back uh, mortgages would be at a record rate. So it's really only 2.5%. That's not a lot historically. Mm. And, uh, and as I say, actually, the um, investors are banking on at the moment, they're betting on um, by mid-2023, we could be looking at 3% for mm. the RBA. So we're beyond that. Right. So we could see a situation where people are getting a short-term money boost from the cost of living measures, but they could also see their mortgages rise. Is that right? Yeah. So in a sense, the government's putting money in one pocket and they're hoping it lasts long enough, probably to the other side of the election, before someone such as the RBA or maybe the supermarket or the fuel pumps, uh, the Bowsers, start taking it out of the other pocket. So it could be a very short-lived sugar hit. Okay, Peter, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Hey, team. Oh. How you going, Grogs? Very good. Greg Jericho is an economics columnist for Guardian Australia. This should be about a minute or so of me singing and scatting along, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Grogs, you are an economics writer for Guardian Australia and you've been combing through the budget there in Canberra, looking at, amongst other things, wages growth. 
As we know, wages are not keeping up with inflation, but lucky for us, the government has predicted accelerating wages growth. Can you tell me about this? What have they forecast? Yes, accelerating wages forecast, which is something that they have forecasted often in the past. And once again, we're going to see it uh, happen, apparently. Mm. We've had wages growing slower than inflation for the past couple of years, really bad falls in real wages as as a result, some of the worst um, real wages falls uh, we've ever had. Mm. But what they're anticipating is that wages growth uh, by... 2025, 2024, perhaps uh, going to get up to 3.5%. And uh, that will be certainly the fastest growth we've seen since the GFC. For the first time in a few years, we are hopefully going to see real wages uh, increase. What are they basing that on? Those what sound like rosy predictions? Yeah, they're pretty rosy predictions. They're, they're basing mostly on unemployment falling. They, they expect uh, unemployment by uh, sort of the middle of next year to get down to 3.75%, which if that happens would be pretty astonishing. It'd be the lowest unemployment we've had since like 1974. Mm. And as a result, generally when unemployment falls, wages growth increases. Unfortunately, what they have in the past done is been a bit optimistic about how fast those wages will actually increase uh, relative to the unemployment rate. And we're seeing that again here. They're expecting unemployment to get down to 3.75% by next year, but that's as low as it goes. And yet, uh, for some reason, over the next three years after that, they're expecting wages growth to increase. Now, that would be nice to happen, but they've uh, predicted such things happening in the past and, and it really hasn't come to fruition. So it is a little bit optimistic, I would suggest, um, especially given what we've seen over the past six years, sort of since about 2016, there's been a real shift in the relationship between unemployment and wages growth. Mm, so, Groggs, as you have written about many times, the link between low unemployment and wages growth is broken. We can't really rely on low unemployment to lead to wage growth anymore. Why is that? Yeah, well, as I say, because un generally when unemployment falls, wages growth goes up. And, and say in the 10, 20 years before 2016, around then, it was a nice uh, linear relationship. And then it kind of went all a bit skew-if. Mm. Um, what we saw was unemployment fall and wages growth falling. It all really went uh, sideways, mostly because there was a lot more part-time work. A lot of people were getting employed, but underemployment was rising. And so there was this real sense that people were in effect trading off more hours instead of getting a wage um, rise. Right. So you've got people like gig economy workers and things like that, which are making it look like we've got a lot of people employed, but they might not be working very much. Yeah, but but also the the real sort of hidden one that hasn't got talked about as much is we're seeing people working part-time, large hours, but just not enough to be full-time. So jobs that used to be full-time are now part-time. So you're, you're working 28, 30 hours a week instead of, you know, 36 hours a week. And so there's this real increase in people who want to be full-time and are close to full-time, but they're not getting the full-time job. So that and also things like the gig economy has meant that unemployment rates that in the past would have seen wages growing over 3% are now seeing them grow around 
2% or even lower. Mm, it stunted them. That's been a real massive shift. The government keeps hoping that it's going to go back to the old old ways and in this budget they're not quite saying we're getting back there but they're certainly seeing better suggesting there's going to be better growth than we have had in the past 6 years relative to unemployment. As I say, it kind of remains to be seen. It's um it's something that uh they keep promising and, and doesn't really keep uh, happening. Exactly. I mean, opposition leader Anthony Albanese said on Tuesday... Well, Patricia, this government have promised on 55 occasions different wage forecasts. That this government has predicted that wages will grow 55 times and 52 times... Guess what? They've missed. And yet again, in the lead up to an election, uh, they're saying, oh, your wages will go up. Just promises. Just trust us. Uh, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll give us a second decade in. Do office. you think they're going to be right this time, though? I think they might be right a couple times, uh, sort of maybe this year, maybe next year, but cripes, you know, I just can't see wages going up without actual other things being done by the government that they're not signalling they're going to do, such as trying to increase the minimum wage, increase um, JobKeeper and JobSeeker, relaxing rules around sort of uh, that have been cramping on unions, things that actually help workers bargain for higher wages. I mean, sort of after, after 55 times and getting it right three times, uh, yeah, I, I'm certainly in the I'll, I'll wait and see, especially when we're seeing those really rosy predictions happening, you know, two, three, four years' time after an election, after the nice uh, sugar hit has worn off from all the tax offsets and things like that. I, I, I wouldn't be um, banking on them just yet. Grogs, thank you so much. No problem, Laura. Wonderful to talk to you. Next, Guardian Australia editor Lenore Taylor and politics editor Catherine Murphy on the big takeaways from this budget. Murph, are you all right to press go? I am recording. Yes, love. Yes. Oh, brilliant. So Murph and Lenore, it is an election budget. Last year was my first budget. Now this is my first election budget. What's your first impression? I guess the question is, this is a normal pre-election budget where the government is spraying cash around. The question is whether that sort of politics as usual, give them some cash and they'll still vote for me type of pre-election budget still cuts the mustard or whether after everything that we've been through, floods and pandemic and crises and wars, whether voters want something a bit more solid and a bit longer lasting than a cash splash and slightly cheaper petrol for six months, whether they're looking for something structural, whether they're looking for more services which we realise we rely on in life and death situations, or whether your normal pre-election cash splash is going to do the trick. The times could not be more serious. You know, there is, there's a war in Europe. There's growing geostrategic unrest in our own region. We've just been through the biggest public health crisis since the Spanish flu. Well, we're kind of still in it. Well, exactly. Uh, we are still in it, and, and the budget points to a degree of uncertainty on that front. 
Right, Murph, you've described this as a plan for the next month. That's what you're calling this budget. (laughs) Well, it pretty much is a plan for the next month. You know, the government will sort of point to future focus in some of the initiatives in the budget, like, you know, sort of a rejiggle of tax treatment for small business and also the big national security spend, the delightfully uh, termed Red Spice initiative in the budget, which is... I think you need to say that in a deeper voice, Murph. <laughs> red Spice. Well, look, I, I, being spicy and red, I'm all for it. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Red Spice uh, is one of the sort of key future-focused initiatives. So just quickly, we should explain that Red Spice is this huge cybersecurity program that is expected to add almost 2,000 jobs to the Australian Signals Directorate. Interestingly, Laura, though, if we actually look at the fine print of that one, it's badged in the budget as a $9.9 billion spend. If we actually look at the spend in net terms over the forward estimates, it's it's about $500 million. So it's, it's quite a distance less than it's badging. Okay, I just want to delve into this cash splash that we've got on the cost of living measures, almost $9 billion in the budget. I'm wondering how much this will actually improve people's circumstances with the skyrocketing costs of living, especially people on lower incomes who hit pockets are going to hurt the most during the next few months. Uh, To some extent, I think, is the answer. And the government's obviously hoping that people will be dazzled by getting $250 sort of checks in the mail. But the biggest factor in cost of living is obviously that wages are not keeping up with inflation. And the budget is forecasting that while that will definitely be the case this year, by next year, they're assuming that wages will be outstripping inflation again um, because, you know, by the old law of supply and demand, low unemployment will push wages up. We know that hasn't happened for years now. And I don't know, I I think voters are aware that it hasn't been happening for years because of structural changes in the labour market. And the Governor of the Reserve Bank has been saying that it's probably not going to happen. So I think that will be one of Labor's main attack points and it is a weakness in the budget. Will this, this cash splash be enough to address the real pinch that people are having? I mean, I think there are other things as well. Yes, the unemployed are getting 250 bucks, but the doll remains at like 45 or $46 a day, which is was the poverty line before the cost of living got so bad, got, you know, before things became so tight. We know that level is untenable. So, yeah, sure, unemployment is lower and it's, you know, lots of people can get a job, but there are people for whom there are really structural impediments to getting into the labour market and for them the money we pay is not enough. And I think that goes to the point that Murph and I have both been making, which is that there that if you sort of put the election to one side and really thought about what we could do with this much money to improve the material circumstances of Australians or to improve the services that, you know, we really know we need. I mean, another example would be aged care. There's an aged care package in this budget. It contains the one-off payments the government had already announced for aged care workers. But there's nothing about aged care pay, which we know from the pandemic is why there was an aged care crisis. It doesn't go to the guts of things, if you like. It go, it, it, it sprays money around the surface, but it doesn't get into the really structural things that we have discovered are, are wrong with our economy. And, you know, I guess the question is, do voters notice that or do they take the money and say, thank you very much? 
Murph, do you agree with that, that this budget doesn't go to the guts of things? It doesn't take up those structural changes, which have been suggested that they're on the table, the government knows about them? Yeah, well, that, I think that that is the thing and it sort of go, it plays to that future, whether, whether the government is demonstrably future-focused or not. And if that's the test of this budget, is the government demonstrably future-focused? Well, the government fails the test. Mm. It's like it, it, is, it is so short-term, it's almost comical, you know, how, how in the moment this is, mm. given the big, the big challenges of our time, as Lenore says. And it's kind of like you know, Morrison's sort of never been somebody to sort of clutter his brain with too much policy. I think that's fair to say. Um, and so he's he's not that sort of prime minister. He is a transactional prime minister and and he is another transactional, uh, you know, set of conditions five minutes before an election. But, yeah, look, the country has got big challenges. The pandemic has, uh, you know, brought them into sharp relief. Uh, we do need a government uh, prepared to look at things in depth and come up with well-thought-out uh, solutions or at least down payments on these problems. And, you know, the budget does not pass that test. In this budget, there's also plenty of money here for the regions. Murph, I believe you've called them thank you, Barnaby, payments. <laughs> what do you mean by that? What's going on here? Oh, Barnaby, Barnaby Joyce, gracious enough not to humiliate the Prime Minister at the Glasgow Climate Summit last year, has uh, trousered, I think, uh, 20 billion, counted to 20 billion uh, dollars over the medium term, so over 10 years, for uh, lots of regional spending. Uh, if we sort of look at the regional spending closely, we see a lot of it occurs in, uh, I hate this cliche of key battlegrounds in the election, but I'll deploy it in this instance, in key battlegrounds uh, in the looming election. So look, obviously, <laughs> Australia is a highly regionalised place. We do need uh, we do need policies for the regions. We do need uh, you know, a sort of a, a roadmap that takes into account the structural changes that are going to occur in the economy over over the next sort of thirty or forty years. Uh, but yes, it's it's certainly um, you know we've been waiting to see the sort of settled accounts, Laura, if you like, of uh, the deal between Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce that basically got the Nationals to sign up to a net zero commitment and the budget lays them out in some detail. I mean... Although I think there's more yet to come. Yes, indeed. Yes, <laughs> Don't answer yet. You haven't seen the steak knives. Yeah, no, that is true. There is, uh, there is more to come. But, yeah, there's a lot of that anyway. We know that prior to the 2019 election, there was a lot of money that went into marginal electorates. So we're seeing that play out in this budget as well. Yeah, I think in the infrastructure funding that Murph was just talking about, I mean, some of it is big sort of uh, infrastructure that's helpful across an entire state, but a lot of it is targeted to infrastructure for a marginal electorate. I think um, our political correspondent, Sarah Martin, did an analysis and found that it, it was a sizable percentage that wasn't on the Infrastructure Australia priorities list. There's also those perennial programs that pop up in pre-election budgets like the Safer Communities Fund and the, you know, which a Stronger Communities Program. They're just little slush funds of money that give 
people announceables in marginal electorates, you know, CCTV cameras in every marginal electorate. Again, things that aren't really the purview of the federal government shouldn't really be the purview of the federal government, but which, you know, get trotted out. So there's those those small fry programs and there is Barnaby's very big programs, but taken together, yep, it's a very political document. In a funny way, reading through it, it felt like hundreds of press re- election press releases all sort of stapled together to form a book. <laughs> well, it's sort of been like just picking up on that point that that has been the coalition's approach. It, it's sort of the springboard to elections has been deliver the budget, then go out and sell it, basically. And uh, and this certainly, as Lenore says, is conceived along those lines. I mean, I suspect there's a bit more to come, but it is... It is conceived and conceptualised along those lines that uh, it's basically about, you know, if, if election contests are about the re-election of members in seats all across the country, it's sort of giving uh, MPs an arsenal of things to roll out at the local and the regional level over the next several weeks, basically. Which is why there feels like there's no national theme. Because there is no national theme. There's no there's no broad narrative, economic narrative here. It is a down in the ditches in every electorate election budget. Mm. Uh, you know, implicitly, I think in these initiatives, Morrison's saying, "Look, I know you don't like me. I know I've lost a lot of bark over the last sort of twelve months or so." Uh, but his whole pitch is better the devil you know, right? Yeah, exactly. Here I am. Better the devil you know. Here's enough stuff to allay your concerns about me so that the transaction cost or the risk of changing government is just a bit too much. Yes, but that then sort of feeds into this weird <laughs> this weird Me Too feedback loop we've got. I'm sorry, I mean mm. Me Too in the sense of matchy-matchy, not, uh, not the other Me Too, but... Mm. Uh, Albanese, in order to be not sort of uh, outmaneuvered by Morrison on that, is is saying, yes, look, we'll do all that and a few of our other stuff as well. But then if the test is better the devil you know... Then you, you lose that. Then the devil you don't know has actually got to be sufficiently different in terms of his product. I mean, we do have an election campaign coming and there might be, you know, there just might be some inspirational policy <laughs> yes, announced. You never, you never know. <laughs> Oh, God, we're sounding, you and I are sounding cynical, which is not like us. Like cynical old ladies, I know. That's why I threw that last remark in. It's not like us, but but it's but it's fair in this instance. It's completely fair. Right. And, yes, look, we, we have got a hope um, that uh, over the election campaign proper that there, there may be some sort of vaulting appeals to something that actually matters over the long term versus, you know, sort of sort of <laughs> successions of short-termism, which is sort of where we've been really over the past few years. So I suppose the big question is, as one of the big opportunities for the Morrison government, for Frydenberg to show you should elect us at the next election, do you think this budget does that, will convince people? Well, it, I mean, it goes to the question that we've been talking to all through this discussion, which is, are the voters minded to be reassured by a government that understands that there are immediate cost of living pressures and, you know, they get a slightly cheaper tank of petrol and 250 bucks in the bank? Or are voters looking at the incredible upheaval that they've been through over the past couple of years and thinking, I really want someone to inspire me with an idea and a plan 
and a program that will make the country better. If they're in the latter frame of mind, it fails. If they're in the former frame of mind, it succeeds. Yeah, I think that's it's well diagnosed, obviously. Uh, I think, look, the Canberra team at, at Guardian Australia fanned out around the country over the last three weeks. We've been in marginal electorates all around the place basically setting ourselves up for the election contest and putting ourselves in touch with the communities that will actually determine the result of this election. I think it's fair to say from that field work that there are regional differences, but in, in sentiment terms, certainly the voters that we've spoken to over the last three weeks are certainly uh, cranky with the Prime Minister. Morrison is not very popular anywhere that we've been. I think it's fair to say that the bulk of voters that we've spoken to, though, are not yet convinced that Anthony Albanese is the answer to the problem. So it gets to this sort of pivot point that Albanese's at at the moment, right? He's got to give people a call to action. He's got to give people a reason to change the government. That's his task over the next little bit. And Scott Myron is probably assuming that every local member making local announcements of nice things that people like is enough to get him over the line. Yeah, and look, and it might work. Mm-hmm. There's there's no doubt. I mean, the, the reason why incumbent governments sort of trail the trinkets ahead of an election contest is that often it works. It might sort of hit the mood of where the public is at. But that said, certainly there's a lot of disenchantment out there. People are unhappy with the government they're getting, for want of a better term. In this election, we're detecting a significant appetite for non-major party politicians of various types. That's a factor in this election contest as well. So, uh, you know, will it work? Won't it work? Well, I don't know, Laura, neither one of us have got a crystal ball, and that's really the story of the next several weeks. But I think, look, my my own feeling having been out recently, is that there is a campaign there to be won by one of these political leaders who is capable of closing the deal in the election campaign. And getting back to Lenore's point, will somebody rise over the next few weeks in order to reassure Australians, appeal to our sense of hope, appeal to our sense of unity, appeal to the serious problems that we need to face up to as a nation? I suspect somebody who who does that will win the coming election. Lenore Murph, thank you so much. Thank you. See you later. That's all, folks. Sorry. Okay. Bye. Bye. See ya. That's it for today. In this episode, you heard from Paul Karp, Greg Jericho, also known as Grokes, Peter Hannum, Catherine Murphy and Lenore Taylor. Do head to theguardian.com where you can read all of their reporting on the budget and a bunch more, including Murph's column, which is titled, At This Gravest of Times, The Coalition Has Served Up an Election Budget Designed Simply to Keep Itself in Power. We also have a build-your-own-budget function where you can search what matters to you in this budget and read all about it. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers are Miles Matnioni, Gabrielle Jackson, and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.